Yeah. Okay, everybody. Welcome to the Keeping in Nostalgia live show. I am your host, Billy Powell. Today with us, as you can see, is Jack Hughes. Jack, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule and uh, <laughs> spending some time with us. I don't know, are you on lockdown also uh, with uh, what's yep. going on in the world? Yeah, we're kind of locked down. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I do the occasional trip to, to see my partner and my, my son, Harry, lives down a, a little town about 10 miles from sometimes uh, nip down and see him. I, ha I had to take him something during the week, you know, but he runs a restaurant, in fact, so he's a great source of food. So there is a sort of technical reason to go and see him as well. <laughs> very neat, very neat. Um, yeah. Before we get started, I just want to kind of give a little bit of rundown on how I got into your music. Yeah, and go um, I got on a Trailways bus when I was uh, about 17 years old, and uh, went from Indianapolis, Indiana, to uh, <laughs> Richmond, Virginia. And yep. uh, back home in Indianapolis, we didn't have cable. We had two of those things that were sticking out of the back of the TV, and my dad had me hold them to make sure the channel came in. Rabbit ears. So once we got to Richmond, Virginia, to my um, uncle Mike and Aunt Becky's, they had cable. And uh, I uh, had been listening to a song by you and uh, uh, Dance Hall Days and also Infatuation by Rod Stewart with my headphones on the bus trip. But I had no idea what I was getting into when I got to Richmond, Virginia and turned on the TV and lo and behold, it was MTV. And right. uh, your video, Dance Hall Days, was the first video I ever saw on MTV. And I don't, I think I probably sent eight, spent eight hours a day on the couch during that summer watching MTV. Okay. But my but my uncle Mike said my, but my uncle Mike said do you want to go to a concert? Well, yeah. And you were opening up for the Cars there at the Coliseum in Richmond, right. and it, it, you you have just stuck with me since then. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And and I actually went out and bought your album Points uh -huh. on the Curve. I did not get it as one of those twelve albums for a penny from Columbia Records and Tapes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You paid full dollar for it. Yeah. Yes, I did. And like I told you a little bit earlier, uh, in going back and forth about possibly doing an interview with you, uh, yeah. Mrs. Gulick, Mrs. Patricia Gulick is going to find this out today if she watches this, watches this interview. But she said, we got a poetry assignment and I used uh, true love as of my poetry. I got an A and I don't think that you're, I don't think you can get very much money from me anyhow, but just in case, I wanted to let you know uh, well, I used an A on the album, or on the uh, uh, poetry. Practical assistance to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little, tell everybody a little bit about where you were based and uh, what, when did you get that first guitar? Uh, yeah. Or was the guitar the first uh, instrument you got? And, and just, just give us a little bit about uh, uh, your, your early days. Yeah. Well, I was born uh, <clears throat> in the Medway Towns, which is a little conurbation of towns about 40 miles southeast of London. So close enough. Uh, for every, if you wanted wanted to see bands and stuff, you could go to London. But it did mean that, uh, especially when I was growing up, it was a pretty dead <laughs> little place, you know. But I guess rather like you, um, I, I watched TV. You know, my parents got a black and white TV, and I saw the Beatles on on TV, and just like was kind of completely blown away by what I saw and what I heard, you know. And I had heard their music on the radio, and from then on, and I was probably about seven or eight years old, and uh, I wanted a guitar. Uh, my dad was a, a musician. He's a saxophone player and a jazz musician. 
and uh, very good in the sense that he didn't go, you know, stay away from these young beat groups. You know, he was kind of like, okay, we'll get you a guitar, but you have to have proper lessons. So that was the deal. So I used to go to a guitar lesson twice a week uh, from about the age of yeah eight nine years old through to really when I was eighteen, I suppose, when uh, uh, I sort of I went to university and, and studied music there. You know, so I had this sort of uh, great sort of underpinning of music theory. Uh, the teacher I had didn't make me play classical guitar and narrow me. She was pretty liberal, and uh, if I brought in a Beatles sheet music thing, I remember taking in All My Loving one time because I just couldn't make sense of the chords. The chords are pretty tricky in that song, actually. And uh, she showed me how to play, you know. So it was it was atmosphere. When you went to the record store as a kid, what, what albums would you bring home? I know you just chatted about the Beatles, but are there any other yeah. ones that, you know, I was obsessed with the Beatles right the way through, you know, and what an education that was, you know, to getting into Okay, so um, what is the perfect atmosphere for putting pen to paper and writing your music? How, how do you do that? Is it, is, do you have to have everything nice and neat on your desk and you start writing, or is it while you're riding a bike, or is it while you're at the grocery store it comes to you? How, do, how does that work for a songwriter like you? All of those things, yeah. I mean, I think the worst way to write a song is to sort of think, I've, I've got a few hours now, I'm blank sheet of paper, I'm going to sit down and write a song, you know. And three hours later, you've probably got nothing, you know. But songs really, for me, come out of experience, I think, you know. And when there's sort of powerful experiences going on, then there's this sort of need to write. And the, and the songs, it feels like they just sort of appear, if you know what I mean. Uh, I mean, I have been in situations where trying to write songs for an album, you know, where you do have to sit down and sort of force the thing through. But quite often that doesn't produce the best results, I think, you know. So uh, I used to teach songwriting uh, at the university here in Canterbury, which is where I live. And um, so um, one of the first things I said is I can't teach you how to write songs. <laughs> but, uh, but I can give you a methodology. And one of the things is to always have a sort of notebook and pen with you or these days you know your your iphone or android or what do you have you know so that you can just jot down ideas all the time because the ideas will come to you when you least expect them and in the most inconvenient moments as well you know so uh, i think people who have uh, you know, friends who are songwriters are used to this sort of thing and suddenly they, they've gone <laughs> you know what I mean? from the conversation they're just like gazing out of the window and starting to hear something or somebody said something and they're thinking about that and uh, so you're constantly on the lookout for for ideas you know um, so you speak from you write from experience is in, with your new album which I was really surprised to find out primitive is really your first solo endeavor it is, yeah, yeah. And all sixteen songs on that album are those all? Those are all written by you and, and experiences. Yeah, I mean, there's two covers on the album. There's a "Look of Love" by Burt Bacharach and Hal David starts the album, and Lana Del Rey's "Video Games" ends it. You know, well, those were both kind of significant songs. They're not just sort of random, you know. But yeah, the, the experience, I guess, was coming out of where I was in my life, which was a mixture of personal things that were happening. Uh, and also being at this sort of age, you know, I'm past 60 now, you know, I'm still writing songs, I'm still loving music, um, you know, I have a sort of jazz quartet thing that I work with, and I say jazz in the most loose way because it's more prog, I suppose, you know. Um, but anyway, working with musicians here in Canterbury, there's a really interesting mix of musicians here, you know. And, uh, yeah, I guess I just started writing some songs, you know, without any particular end result in, in mind. But the songs just kept 
going, you know. And about a year into this project, I started thinking that I want this to be a double album, and I really want to make it big. And uh, I think a couple of people have said to me, you know, when they listen to this album, you know, there are certain tracks they love, you know, but it's really the cumulative effect of the whole thing that people are into, you know. And that, to me, is uh, what I wanted to achieve, in a sense. Not what I set out to achieve, but by the time I was about halfway through writing it, I wanted to create an album. It's not like a concept album, although there's, there are related themes, but each of the songs sort of relates to the others, and there are musical themes that keep recurring and so on. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to do an album like I experienced albums when I was a kid, basically. And with the reemergence of vinyl, you put this on a, an actual vinyl also, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Which, again, makes you... Uh, I was talking to somebody about this this morning, actually. It makes you part of a sort of community uh, in a way, you know, you know, there's obviously the online community of making music and digital music, and uh, and that's all great, you know. But I guess that's maybe it's a younger demographic, and maybe the kind of people who buy vinyl are people who want to sit down and just shut their eyes and listen to music, which is not something that people do much anymore. Although this lockdown scenario has maybe created a time where people can do that again, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, one slight glimmer of light on an otherwise pretty dark scenario. You know, you know but uh, you, yeah, I want it to be that. You know. Say what you want to say about the millennials, but at least they uh, appreciate Bono. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you're getting a little bit of success and and your music career is going well, I, I mean, I know this is a silly question, but I but I have to ask it. Who picks your wardrobe? Do you, at a young age, even today as you go around and, and you yeah. tour and you play uh, concerts, I mean, is it something where you're like, you know what, this, this, is, uh, this, is, um, this is cool looking, I think I'd look really good on stage, do you get input from people, how, how does that work? Yeah, it's a funny one, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess I do sometimes, you know. I think, you know, there was a big sort of transitional thing in, in my life a few years ago, and uh, and I did, so I, one of the things that happened was I lost a lot of weight, actually, you know, and I think then, and, and also I started to do gigs again, and I, I probably hadn't really done many gigs at all during the sort of 2000, from 2000 till 2009, uh, I did a few little things, but nothing much, you know. Um, so, yeah, you sort of, uh, I, I got more interested in clothes again, and I got more interested in all sorts of things, actually, in sort of, like, living life to the full. I, I sort of made this decision of, the, like, do it now, actually, became my motto, you know. I think when you have kids and you're living a, a, a sort of uh, a life in the, in the mainstream, if you like, you know, it's very easy to sort of put off things that you want to do, uh, uh, and think, well, I, yeah, I'll, I'll do that sometime. But um, uh, I, I suddenly got this sense that actually putting things off is, is the wrong way to live. You should do it now. You know, I know that's very difficult right now, you know, but maybe it's worth making that list in your uh, quiet moments and uh, and when we can all move around again, you know, go, go to those places you want to go and see those things you want to see and listen to the music you want to listen to, you know. I always wanted to go to Venice, for example, and spend time there, and I got to do that, thank God, before all this terrible stuff happened, you know. I always wanted to go and see an opera, the Vienna State Opera, and I, and I did that, you mean? And I, so I did all these things I wanted to do, you know. And, uh, yeah, it, it became like a much more kind of exciting life, in a way. Was notoriety a positive for you or a negative for you? Like, you, you know, you're at the grocery store, someone comes up to you and recognizes you. How, how does that work as, you know, when you guys, you know, were as popular as you were? Yeah. 
<laughs> what was interesting was that, you know, we were signed to Geffen in Los Angeles and our career was big in the States. But in the UK, it wasn't so big. So when I was in the UK with my family and stuff, rarely would I get recognized and stopped in the street and stuff. You know? uh, so being having the sort of whole uh, fan thing happening in, in the States was kind of fine, actually, because it felt like work. You know? But I must say, I've never really had bad experiences with fans. Too. I mean, they're, they're kind of always to a, to a person, um, polite and, and nice. And, um, you know, you've got to be grateful that people are out there buying your music and I actually do recognize you, <laughs> you know, it's like, and particularly these days, uh, I love it. You know, it's very nice to have that sense of recognition and, uh, uh, and people's interest in what you're doing. You know? Um, are there songs that you're tired of playing? Um, I wouldn't say so actually, you know, no. I still, Nick and I sometimes do these Wang Chung shows where we play sometimes just th the three hits or three of the hits, you know. Um, <clears throat> I must say, it's not the playing that tires me on those shows or bores me or whatever the word is, but, you know, I always love playing. It's all the traveling and all the kind of other stuff that goes with it and the hanging around, you know, and it doesn't matter whether you're playing three songs or 30, do you know what I mean? You've still got to get to the venue and you've still got to be there for the sound check and you've still got to sit around, you know. And I started to feel that I was really losing a lot of precious time you know, uh, on those tours. I stepped back from doing it, you know, the result was primitive, which is uh, exactly what I wanted, not exactly what I wanted to achieve, but it, it was sort of a, a sense that, yeah, that I do have a lot of time that I can plough into these things. And uh, so doing that was more constructive than sitting around to play dance all days, let's go and everybody have fun tonight, you know, again. Um, but I, I love playing those tunes, you know. Uh, I prefer playing slightly longer sets, because I think, uh, you know, when people hear Space Junk and To Live and Die in LA and Fire in the Twilight and all the different things that we've done where the tracks have been used in movies or, you know, have profiles of their own, I think most people think, wow, you know, Wang Chung, I thought was this, but I didn't realize you did all this as well. You know? So over the years, we've built up this kind of uh, legacy, I suppose, you know, and to be able to play a bunch of those songs and some of our newer stuff as well, uh, a gig is exciting, you know, and that I very much enjoy. You know, Fire in the Twilight was awesome from the Breakfast Club soundtrack. I yeah. cut, I mowed a mini a lawn to that song, man. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what is the music industry like today compared to when you guys first started out? Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's very different. Um, but in some ways, it's, it's more manageable, you know. I think when we signed to Geffen, you know, I mean, the whole process of being signed to a major label is that they're investing a lot of money into what you're doing and into your kind of, uh, well, you know, seven months in Abbey Road wasn't cheap, you know. And then the videos at that time, they cost a lot of money to make and stuff, you know. Obviously, I was paying for it, or, you know, me and Nick were paying for it, you know, and I uh, have been paying for it for a long time since, you know. But that's the game, you know. Uh, these days, I guess it's all a lot more small scale, but I kind of like that in a way. And one of the things about Primitif that I like is that all the musicians on it are local musicians. I'm working with a record label that's based uh, well, more or less here in Canterbury. Uh, we filmed the videos in Margate, which is the town where my son lives, about, about 10, 20 miles from here. And um, so it's all more sort of manageable scale. So if I was hoping to get rich out of Primitif, then that's probably not going to happen. But in terms of the connection with people these days, um, you know, you're, you're more or less aware of every 
CD and album you, you sell. You know, in fact, I was wrapping up a whole load of them this morning to, to post off, you know. So um, it's a different game, you know. Um, in terms of the sort of satisfaction that it gives me these days, it's like big, you know, compared with uh, how it used to be. I mean, and I say that because there were a lot of frustrations when you were working with a major label and their agenda, and then your own sort of sense of how you wanted things to be. But uh, I, I wouldn't want to complain about any of it, you know, and, uh, and certainly having the success I had in the 80s uh, has enabled me to keep music as the central part of my life and uh, essentially pays for me to do things like Primitif, uh, you know, pays for that still, you know, so it's, it's all good. Now, now, I saw where you actually sell autographed copies of the double album, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you order it from my website, uh, usually I can sign those and, uh, yeah, let, uh, that, that's how that works, yeah. What was it like, you know, Jimi Hendrix, you know, all these people who couldn't under, couldn't grasp fame, uh, mm. was an addict was was alcohol or drugs ever an, an issue or how did you did you just have the passion for the music or uh, did you find something else to do besides getting into that crowd or into that kind of stuff yeah i, I think because i had kids you know I, by the time my dance all days came out i had three children <laughs> you know uh and uh, i was on my second marriage by the time day dance all days came out so i was kind of like uh you know, I've got to keep this together, you know. Um, you know, when I, I spent a year, I spent three years at uh, university in London, and then I spent a year at the Royal College of Music, and I lived with a friend of mine then, uh, and we did <laughs> various uh, little, um, what should we say, mind-expanding experiments during that time. And I think I sort of, uh, it was fine, but I kind of think my main sense that I took away from it was it was a colossal waste of time. You know, not exactly waste, but it was very time-consuming. You know? And I think I always had this sense of I just want to kind of get on. And I guess my relationship with music was always as well quite uh, analytical in a way. I sort of felt I wanted to really understand how the music worked, you know. So it wasn't for me like getting into a kind of detached state and just creating stuff. You know, I was much more into structure of things and that's not to say that it was all calculated at all do you know I mean it was all coming from a strong place but I never um, in the short period when I dabbled in drugs and things I never found it helpful creatively I found it was just I just kind of lost a lot of time basically and so the short answer to your question is I never really went in that direction you know fortunately Nick was not into that stuff so we never attracted that kind of crowd around us you know and um yeah, it was kind of, it, it just didn't really impact on, on Wayne at all. Did, did I read correctly that your son is an actor? I have two sons, yeah. One of them is an actor, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was in a show, a, a soap called EastEnders, which is a BBC show that's still on, actually. But that was about 10 years ago. He was in it for about six years, from when he left school to about the age of uh, uh, 20, 22, something like that. You know, so he was very young. But he became massively, um, you know, heartthrill kind of you know teen teen star over here for a while you know and um and i think if you'd be talking to him about uh, fame and you know all that stuff he'd be quite uh, negative about his experiences but then he had it much bigger than i than i ever did and uh, and it really did impede his you know he literally couldn't go out and stuff you know? and um, so it was a difficult time you know? but fortunately I, I never really had it that bad you know? When getting ready to go out on stage, was there? A, were you nervous? You know, I watched a, a lot of video footage before I did this interview with you, and I, 
Um, um, were you nervous? Was there something that calmed your nerves? Or did you have ever have any kind of, you know, Rod Stewart was big on, he used to stand behind the speakers and saying at first when he first started his career. Was yeah, there any yeah. kind of stage fright or how did you kind of get over that uh, with yeah. what you do? I, I think I was pretty sort of, uh, it, I was very tense. When I look at videos of me playing in the 80s, you know, I, you know, I, I talk fast, <laughs> playing fast, you know, everything's very, Argh! you know, I sort of think, wow, just let it go. It's all fine. You know, you're good at what you do. You just relax. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I didn't feel that at the time. I, I felt that it was very kind of like, I wouldn't say it was like, I feel like nervous, frightened, but I felt nervous, like kind of ready to, you know, fight or flight. I was definitely ready to fight. Sort of, you know. but, but these days, uh, I enjoy it much more. I don't suffer from nerves, anything like as much. You know. I'm probably more nervous about whether I remembered all the cables and things I need than, than about doing the show. You know, so, you know yeah. doing your album in uh, the same studio that the Beatles did and, and, mm. and all that stuff, I mean, and I know it goes by fast and sometimes life goes by in a whirlwind, but yeah. are there situations in your life that you found, you know, I would not be able to meet this person or I would not be able to do this if it wasn't for rock and roll music? Mm, yeah. Well, I think some of the friendships, you know, I mean, I have met some famous people over the years, you know, and that's always a thrill. You know? But I think some of my sort of the more enduring friendships, like with Bill Freakin, you know, they're still good friends, um, Tony Banks from Genesis, I did an album with him uh, back in the 90s, we, we remain good friends, and um, Chris and Ross and all those guys, and they're all amazing people, they're very creative people that have led very interesting lives, and the ability to be able to really sit down and chat with those guys and hang out with them, go to their houses and stuff, that, that's really been, those guys have really made me a bigger person, because you, know, you get a lot of insight into life through them, and uh, the books they read and the movies they watch and the things they turn you on to, you know. So it's, it's all really interesting. You know? So that has been very powerful. And that, Tony Banks, that's with, uh, was that Strictly Inc. or Strictly yeah. Incorporated? Yeah, so Tony does solo albums periodically or did in the sort of 80s and 90s. And uh, yeah, he doesn't write, he doesn't like writing lyrics. I mean, he can do it, but he prefers to get people in to do that. So uh, I had actually done an, an album with his, with the, Nick Davis, who produced the more recent Genesis albums and, and does all of their remasters and re-releases and stuff, you know. So Nick is a very kind of bright kind of engineer, producer. And I did my, I did do a solo album when Wang Chung split up, but it was never released. And I never really pursued it to get it released, you know, which makes Primitive my first solo album. But after working with Nick Davis, he recommended me to Tony to do some work on his album. And out of that came Strictly Inc. and... Uh, this, this great album that, that I did with him. You know, Tony was really writing some really wonderful music at that point with the, you know, sort of Peter Gabriel Genesis sort of yeah. style. And they, they, those guys were, you know, I used to listen to them a lot when I was a kid. You know, so that was a big thrill. What, what's it like to, money's starting to come in. Do you, do you have to have a pretty good financial head on your shoulders? Do you go out and find people to help you with that too? You know, because you've seen some rock and roll stars which, you know, are, are, are penniless and, and mm. they have to, you know, go out and, you know, do whatever they have to do to uh, to make money. And yeah. same question, within this same question, um, do you still own your publishing rights? Was that something that was, someone come up to you and wanted to offer you money for publishing rights? How does that work in the music industry? Well, these are all sort of strategic things, really, that happened over the years. I think Nick and I were very fortunate to have a good manager who was a friend as well as a, a manager. You know? And he really looked out for us, and he did deals that were good. 
And to be honest, you know, when we did a couple of big deals in the 80s, he took a lot of the money and put it in a pension fund. You know, I was like, you can't have that money. You know, so I never was like, you know, bought a Ferrari or kind of like had money to burn. In fact, I was fairly uh, not impoverished, but you know, I didn't have a lot of money. You know, uh, to sort of splash around uh, at any point really during the sort of 80s and, and 90s. And it's only more recently, I think, when we did actually do a sort of publishing deal. And, um, you know, we, we sort of made an offer we couldn't refuse sort of thing. So it's only been more latterly that we've uh, had some money. And, and that's good. A good time to have money is when you're in your 50s. <laughs> that sort of thing. When you're a little more careful about what you're going to do. With it. And yeah. sometimes I sort of think, well, maybe it would have been fun to have to have a Ferrari. Do you know what I mean? But uh, I don't know. It ne- never appeared. I, I was never that interested in all that stuff. Do you know? And I guess, again, this sort of high focus on music. Uh, you know, I still... I still am obsessed with music, too. I mean, I'm really fascinated by it, you know, and so that's my interest. So buying a guitar here and there is probably about as extravagant as I've got. Was the video-making process a pain in the ass? <laughs> in a way it was at the time, you know. I, I was never a big fan of the videos, you know. Growing up in the 70s, effectively, you know, when prog bands made these albums where you put them on, put the vinyl on, sit back, shut your eyes, and just have this imaginative experience, that to me was powerful, you know, and, um, you know, MTV videos where it sort of gives you a scenario and tells you what to think almost, you know, I, I never particularly like that, but that's big, that sounds very mean to say that, doesn't it, you know, when a lot of my, uh, you know, you're aware of me because I was on MTV for every afternoon in your living room sort of thing, you know, so there was a massive upside to it, you know, but uh, I, I did tend to leave the video production to the video creators, you know, they did what they did. I think the only one that me and Nick really got involved in was Everybody Have Fun Tonight, where we had quite a strong sense of wanting to have this uh, sort of cut up, sort of uh, slow, what's well, not, you know, the jerky kind of thing, you know. Uh, and uh, I guess that was very inspired by Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer video, you know, so stop motion was very much the flavour of the month. You know? So we wanted something like that. And, um, yeah, we worked with uh, Kevin Godley and Lord Cream, who were the sort of top guys at the time. So that, that was a re- great video to make. I enjoyed that. Yeah. With the new album, Primitive, with the 16 new tracks, and I will also let everybody know where they can get it and all that kind of stuff when I publish this, uh, um, this show. Um, yeah. we, uh, after the lockdown is over, or, or, are you going to go out and tour with it? Or, uh, um, to, and, uh, and where would that be? Well, I'd love to do some, some stuff in the States, you know, but obviously um, people have certainly heard of Wang Chung, probably not so much of Jack Hughes, you know, but there's a growing awareness and uh, I, I would love to do some, some club dates, you know, with uh, with the band I have in the UK uh, or or whatever, you know, there, there's all, I, I think the great experience of working uh, on my jazz stuff is that I'm much more used to working with different musicians, you know, and, and because of my training, I can sort of write out parts and stuff, you know, so I can sort of give music to guys, uh, count them in, and we play it, do you know what I mean? So a lot of rock bands are rehearsing for like <laughs> sort of six weeks or something, aren't they, before they can play the first tune, you know. But, um, so I'm quite into sort of um, doing some touring and maybe playing some of the, the jazz stuff and primitive and then some Wang Chang stuff and really sort of mixing it up. That would be fun to do. Um, how did you come up with the name Jack Hughes? <laughs> well, uh, it was in the, I guess, the sort of mid-70s and um, when uh, the, some of the punk bands were emerging and they all had these sort of like uh, made-up names, you know, so Joe Strummer and Johnny Rotten, 
Sting, you know, they, they were all kind of had these names. So a friend of mine came up with um, Jacques, you know, which is this French thing. Jacques was a book by Emile Zola about uh, a, a sort of um, a, a kind of, what's the word, yeah, a dereliction of justice. Do you know? I mean, this guy was put in jail you know, for something he didn't do. You know? And Jacques was, I accuse you of being corrupt. Do you know? And it was subsequently taken up as various people wrote Jacques pamphlets about different things. You know? So this, and this friend of mine was laughing and saying, that would be funny, wouldn't it, Jack Hughes? You know, you know, this kind of guy was just angry about everything. <laughs> so I wrote a song called I'm Jack Hughes around that idea. Uh, this is going right back to, this, like I say, it's 1978, 79, when I first met Nick. And, uh, you know, my real name is Jeremy, Jeremy Ryder. And I was in this punk band. And I remember the, the drummer in the band, Paul Hammond. He was a lovely guy. And he sort of said, oh, I can't deal with calling you Jeremy. I'm going to call you Jack. <laughs> so Jack's stuck. And uh, everybody knows me as Jack these days. I think only my parents call me Jeremy. So. Uh, what do you, how do you feel about I Love the 80s? I mean, the tour. You know, the, this, is, it, is it a... Do you, do you, do you want to push on, like, with your brand new album, Primitive? Or do you enjoy doing these, uh, you know, these interviews with me going out on the road with I Love the 80s? I know you've taken a break from it from a little bit. Well, yeah. No, I'm, I'm happy to do those things, you know. Um, obviously, it's, it's getting a balance and stuff, you know. Um, I don't do all of those uh, 80s shows, but I, I'm happy to do some of them. You know, and a mix of uh, Primitive and that stuff is is what I want to do, you know. Uh, you know, I'd love to do sort of bigger shows with Wang Chung where we can play more stuff, as I said. You know, but I'm happy to play Dance All Days to anybody who listens. You know, so. <laughs> you know it, um, um, Gordon Lightfoot had the number two song for six weeks in a row behind Rod Stewart's Tonight's the Night, and I always wonder what he thought, so I'm going to ask you. You guys were behind uh, um, the the Bangles, yeah. Without getting to that <laughs> ultimate number one, does that? Do you think about that occasionally, or were you, were, did you open up Billboard and Cash Box to see if you guys had hit number one, or or yeah. you know how was that feeling of, of that time and getting a number one? Yeah. I guess it was. It all felt like a bonus. Do I mean you know? Uh, Without seeming like I do care, uh, we were number one on Cash Cashbox on that week and number two on Billboard. Okay. So um, you know, I, I felt like we kind of made it, you know. But uh, it was it was good enough, you know. And uh, yeah, I, I don't mind, you know, the number two slot is fine for me. Actually, they're still pretty good. Uh, Jack Hughes, the name of the album is Primitive. Uh, it's been awesome. It's a bucket list item of me chatting with you. This is amazing. If it just, I think of those days a lot. Of course. I keep the nostalgia alive, so you know that's the reason why yeah. I'm into what I'm into. But thank you so much. Can you let everybody know where they can actually get the album? Yeah, well, uh, best place is probably my website, which is www.jackhughes.com. Very easy. And Hughes is spelled without the G-H, so H-U-E-S. And, um, yeah, you can listen to it on Spotify and all those uh, digital platforms. But um, I did make it. Uh, so that you list uh, the, the ultimate listing experience is on vinyl, and also you get all the packaging and the sleeve notes and uh, lyric sheets and all of that stuff. So uh, yeah, buy some physical copy and uh, that will enjoy. Well, that's awesome, and I think uh, when everybody watches this video, uh, they'll uh, everybody will have fun tonight. I hope they do. Like <laughs> stay safe and uh, see you on the other side of all this. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Jack. It's a pleasure.